Welcome to this presentation of the First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, you can grab a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. If you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 861. Last week we started a section of our story where Jesus is continuing to demonstrate his authority over all things as the spirit-empowered servant of the Lord who has come to restore all things and to make them right again while at the same time, he reveals more about the true nature of his mission, as he calls uh, unlikely and perhaps even unwanted people into his community of followers. In the midst of this process, there's an increasing awareness that Jesus is not just a man. He's not even just a prophet, but by his very nature, he is divine. That's demonstrated as he does things that only God can do. And we're going to see that even more this morning as the scope of Jesus' ministry continues to take shape. And so we're in Luke chapter 5, and we're going to pick up this morning beginning in verse 17. Luke writes, On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And so as we move along in the story, Luke uh, tells us about yet another specific occasion when Jesus was teaching. And at this point, he introduces us to a group of people known as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So I want to talk for just a moment about the Pharisees so that we have an understanding of, of what we're dealing with here. Right, so going back to the end of the Old Testament, right, we're talking about the ministry of Malachi, uh, the events of Nehemiah reestablishing uh, the people in Israel, the, the, the big lingering question going forward was, are we going to be faithful to the Lord now or not? Right? And as that conversation developed over time, a, a group of people formed who, who called themselves the Hasidim, which means the, the faithful ones or the, the pious ones. Now, the Hasidim were convinced that the only way to avoid ever being sent back into exile again and ultimately to, to set the stage for God to fulfill his, his promised messianic kingdom was, was for the people to keep the law, consistent obedience to the Old Testament law. And so the Hasidim were radically committed to keeping the law. So much so that over time they developed what they referred to as a fence around the law, which essentially amounted to a body of, of detailed rules about the commands. And so the idea was that by establishing lots of smaller rules that you had to follow, you, you protected the law from being broken. You, you built a fence around it to protect it. And so for an example that might make sense to us, you can think of it like this. Uh, you, you cannot possibly break the speed limit 
if you consistently drive no more than 10 miles per hour less than the speed limit. Right? So while the law might state that the speed limit is 60 miles an hour in a given lo location, the Hasidim would teach never to drive above 50. And in that way, you were guaranteed to never break the law. And so over time, the Hasidic traditions around the law continued to grow so that there were multiple commandments around each command. Uh, and we'll talk more about those as we come to them in the story. But then around 200 B.C., uh, religion mixing together with politics caused the Hasidim to develop into the group that we know in the Bible as the Pharisees. Right, now, the teachers of the law that Luke refers to is, is simply a group of scribes among the Pharisees, which means that they were the, the theologians of the day who taught the Bible for a living. And so hopefully that gives us a little bit of a framework for understanding the background of, of what's happening here and through the rest of the book. The Pharisees are a group of, of strictly religious people who, who follow the law and who deeply resent the Roman Empire and everything that it stands for. Okay, so Luke has said several times now that Jesus' reputation as a teacher and as a miracle worker have spread far and wide. And now at this point, uh, we see that, that representatives of the Pharisees have come literally from all over to, to hear Jesus teach and to see for themselves what all the fuss is about. And so no doubt they are, they are here to evaluate whether or not he aligns with their views. And Luke tips us off to what's going to happen when he tells us that the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. And so he's teaching here, but that's not all that he's going to do. And then in verse 18, we see that a group of men come carrying a man on a, on a stretcher who is paralyzed. And Luke tells us that they are trying to get him to Jesus. They seem to be convinced that if Jesus just sees this man, then he will heal him. Right? The problem is that there are so many people that they can't make their way through the crowd. But instead of giving up, they go up to the roof of the building and they lower the man down into the room right in front of of Jesus. Right, so most houses and buildings in the first century would have had a flat roof that could be used for multiple purposes, and there would have been a staircase on the outside that led up to the roof. So this would not necessarily be as difficult as you might imagine it being at first glance. Nevertheless, it probably caused quite a disturbance. Right? I mean, you can imagine if someone just started coming down out of the roof right here in the middle of our worship service. That would be a little bit distracting. And so we'll see what happens next as we pick up again in verse 20. It says, And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. So while some people, may, some people may have seen this disturbance as, as inconsiderate, some may have seen it as a huge distraction, Jesus sees it as a tremendous act of faith. 
And in response, he looks at the paralyzed man at the end of verse 21 and tells him, your sins are forgiven you. Now, this is interesting because it's not exactly what the men were looking for when they brought him to Jesus, right? They were hoping that he would be healed physically. But Jesus knows what he's doing. It's also incredibly significant because nobody in the history of the world has ever uttered these words before, right? Nobody has ever forgiven sins before. No prophet, no priest, no king has ever said something like this. Even on the Day of Atonement, when when the high priest would make a sacrifice on behalf of the nation and, and pronounced forgiveness, he did that on behalf of God, not in his own authority. Right, but in this moment, Jesus declares this man's sins to be forgiven. Not at the temple, not uh, in, in uh, combination with a sacrifice, but simply because he says so. Now, in verse 22, when the scribes and Pharisees hear this, they're outraged. They begin to ask themselves, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And in their mind, it's incredibly arrogant and even blasphemous for, for Jesus to presume to forgive sin. Right? Forgiving sin is a prerogative that is reserved for God alone. Of course, they're halfway right. Only God can forgive sins. They just haven't caught on to who Jesus is yet. Now, Jesus can tell what the Pharisees are thinking, and so starting in verse 22, he confronts them about their thoughts. He says, why do you question in your hearts? And then he poses a question to them. He asks, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say rise and walk? Now, if you think about it, it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven, because there's no way to evaluate whether or not that that's actually happened. I could go around the room all day and say, your sins are forgiven, and your sins are forgiven, and your sins are forgiven, and there's no way to prove or disprove whether or not it's actually happened. But if we had a paralyzed person in the room this morning, and I looked at them and I said, stand up and start walking around, then one of two things is going to happen. Either they're going to stand up and start walking around, or much more likely they're going to continue to sit there and look at me like I'm an idiot. And I would be, right? Telling a paralytic to stand up is not something that you do unless you have the ability to back it up and make it happen. And that's exactly what Jesus does next. In dramatic fashion, he says in verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he looks at the paralyzed man and he says, rise up, take up your bed, and go home. And immediately the man gets up, picks up his bed, and walks out of the building glorifying God. Now, this would be the, the ancient equivalent of a, of a mic drop moment, right? Uh, this, is, this has never happened before. This is, uh, this is crazy. By, by doing what is considered more difficult, Jesus establishes his ability to do what is considered easier, right? Just like last week with the fish, he has called his shot, and, and the result has, has been something with no natural explanation. The only explanation is that if if God is the only one with the ability to do this and Jesus just did it, then Jesus must be God, which means that he also, therefore, has the authority to forgive sins. Now, Luke tells us that when everyone, including the Pharisees, sees this, they're completely stunned. 
Of all the things that Jesus has done up to this point, there's been nothing quite like this. And so you'll notice how Luke stacks up expressions of, of confoundment in verse 26. He says that amazement seized them all. And they glorified God. And they were filled with awe. In fact, they're so overwhelmed that all they can say is, we have seen extraordinary things today. They're, they're, they're not necessarily at a point where they can, can process all this, connect the dots, and appreciate the implications of what all this means. But they do know that they have witnessed a, an undeniable miracle. And that Jesus is everything that, that he has been said to be, and then some. Then the plot is going to thicken even more as we pick up again, beginning in verse 27. It says, After this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So after this healing, Jesus goes out and sees a man named Levi. And Luke tells us that Levi is a tax collector. Now, we've discussed previously how hated tax collectors were by the Jews. Beyond being greedy and often abusing their authority to to take advantage of people and to steal, essentially, they were also seen as traitors, as Jews who were working for the oppressive Roman Empire and who were even benefiting from their treachery uh, at their fellow Jews' expense. Uh, Tax collectors were hated. They were seen as the lowest of the low, so much so that they were not allowed to give testimony in a Jewish court, and they were excommunicated from from participating in worship at the synagogue. To be a a tax collector was the worst thing you could possibly do in the first century. But Jesus walks up to this Jewish compromiser, and he says, follow me. He calls him to be one of his disciples. And we see that just as as Peter, James, and John did last week, as as soon as Jesus says this, Levi gets up and leaving everything, follows him. And again, the word follow does not simply mean that he walked behind him, but but it indicates that Levi has become an official disciple of Jesus. This is a, a decisive change moment in his life. Everything going forward uh, from this point on is going to be determined by Jesus. And later on in verse 29, Levi hosts a great feast at his home in Jesus' honor. Luke tells us there was a large company of of tax collectors and other assorted sinful people, uh, immoral people there with them. So Levi becomes a disciple of Jesus, and he throws a big party in Jesus' honor and invites all of his friends and co-workers to come to it. And Jesus is there hanging out with all of them. And when the Pharisees see this, they are offended and again outraged. And they ask the disciples, why are you eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Again, while all these people are Jews, they are Jews who are not 
pursuing God in their lives. They are not seeking to live their lives according to the law. From the Pharisees' perspective, these people are part of the problem in Jewish society. And it should be beneath someone like Jesus to associate with them. If we're going to keep ourselves pure, then we need to avoid their contaminated influence. Well, in response, Jesus says to them in verse 31, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so think about that for just a moment. What would you, what would you think about a doctor who refused to ever be around sick people? It wouldn't be a very good doctor, would they? Right? No, the, the, the job of a doctor is not to go around affirming people who are healthy. It's to help people who are not healthy. And in the same way, Jesus has come as the Messiah to save his people from their sin. So the Pharisees see people like Levi and his, and his friends as too far gone. But for Jesus' perspective is that sinful people are exactly why he's come. What else would you expect? Of course he's going to seek them out and pursue relationships with them. Now, we need to pause here for a moment because this story and, and the other ones that are like it in the Gospels are at the very heart of, of a conflict about what the nature of discipleship should be in the church today, and, and especially among people in my generation. You see, there, there are two dominant sides that exist on a spectrum. And on the one side, there are people who make a big deal about everything, and then on the other end of the spectrum are people who don't make a big deal about anything. And so on the one hand, there are some people like the Pharisees who feel most comfortable following rules about the rules about the rules. And so you come up with strange things like not being allowed to dance or, or play cards or dominoes, depending on which church you go to. Or, or in some cases, people like this will focus on particular sins of other people while conveniently ignoring their own sins. And, and they make a big deal about what other people do and not on things that necessarily they do. And so if you don't match up to their standard, then you're not welcome. The church is probably not for you because you're not good enough. Right? Well, on the other hand, and increasingly, again, in my generation, there are those who don't make a big deal about anything. Right? They'll look at this story and say, well, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. As if that somehow means that Jesus doesn't have a problem with extortion and with other forms of, of immoral living. And so while Pharisees make judgments about everything, these people act like making any kind of moral evaluation is wrong. And so whenever whatever hot-button issue of the day comes up in conversation, they act like that, that to, uh, to make any type of, of moral evaluation is, is unchristlike. You should just affirm people the way they are. That's unchristlike to do anything else. But the reality is that both of these positions are wrong. Now look at the story again. Jesus genuinely approaches Levi. He doesn't hate him for his sin, and he's not worried about being contaminated by it either. Right? He, he approaches him, but he also doesn't just say, hey, keep doing what you're doing. No, he says, follow me. He calls him to discipleship. Everything is going to be different for Levi from this point forward. And, and in the same way, later on, Jesus goes to Levi's party and, and is hanging out with all kinds of people who, again, are not pursuing God with their lives. They're not living according to the law. They're, they're actually in direct opposition to it 
in many ways. And, and he embraces them socially. He treats them with dignity, with respect. He even enjoys their company. But he's also clear at the end of the passage that he has come to call them to repentance, right? to forsake sin, and to pursue righteousness in their lives. And so we have to understand it's not an either-or. It's a both-and. Jesus truly loves sinful people. There's no other kind, by the way. And Jesus truly loves sinful people, and he calls them to repentance so that they can be forgiven of their sin and so that they can begin to experience life the way it was designed to be. Church, we need to understand this, that the Great Commission calls us to make disciples of all nations, right? all kinds of different people with all kinds of different backgrounds and all kinds of different sin struggles, and we are to disciple them, first of all, right, by baptizing them when they come to faith in Jesus, and then after that, by teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. And so two things. We have to understand that by its very nature, discipleship is universally transferable. Right? There is nobody who is, who is too far gone or who is out of bounds to be able to come to faith in Jesus. But by its very nature, discipleship is also universally transformative. Because all who truly come to faith in Jesus will begin to follow him in obedience. Right? This is, uh, again, not an either-or, it's a both-and. This is one of the reasons why one of the expectations for membership in the church is that you are actually trying to follow Jesus with your life. Not that you're expected to be perfect by any means, because, again, there is nobody who's perfect, but the expectation is that you are trying. Right? Our goal as individuals and as a church should be to genuinely love all people, even as we take the scriptures seriously. In fact, the only way to love people genuinely is to take the scriptures seriously. Because to try to engage about sin in any other way, whether judgmentally on the one hand or dismissively on the other hand, falls short of Jesus' example to us. Right? We love people by telling them the truth about sin as fellow sinners and by pointing them to the hope of redemption that we have in Christ. Right? So this is going to become increasingly important as our culture continues to move further and further away from biblical standards. We have to take our cue, not becoming Pharisees on the one hand, or, or, or uh, people who don't care about anything on the other, but speaking the truth in love. This is the way of Jesus. And so in our passage this morning... We continue to see that Jesus has come to restore God's people by forgiving their sin as he demonstrates his ability to do exactly that. Right? The, the twin truths of our text are that Jesus can forgive sins and he actively pursues sinful people. Right? The good news this morning is that our sin will not keep Jesus from us. As I said last week, you don't have to worry that you've gone too far or that you've done too much. Our sin may keep us from Jesus, but it will not keep Jesus from us, because our sin is the very reason he came. And so we can have confidence that Jesus is both willing and able to save. As we think about this, at the end of the day, Jesus is able to forgive because he is the one who paid for it. 
Imagine for a moment that that you're out to eat with a a group of friends, and towards the end of your meal, I come up to your table and I say, hey guys, you go ahead and leave and enjoy the rest of your evening together. Well, you'd probably say, well, we can't leave just yet because we haven't paid for our bill. And if I said, oh, don't worry about that, that's that's fine, you just go ahead and enjoy the rest of your evening, Well, well, that doesn't work because I don't have the authority to release you from the restaurant without your bill being paid. But if, on the other hand, I come up to your table and I say, hey, guys, dinner's on me tonight. I'm buying, so you go go ahead and go and enjoy the rest of your evening. Now that changes everything. Now I do have the authority to release you from the restaurant because I'm the one paying for the bill. And in the same way, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins because he is the one who paid for them and his death on the cross, where he took the punishment that we deserve to receive for our sin for us, so that we can be forgiven. And and the good news is that if we will turn to him in faith and repentance, he promises to restore us, to forgive us, and then to lead us on a lifelong journey of discipleship, where we get to come to know him more and more and help others to come to know and follow him as well. May that be true for each one of us, this morning. Let's pray.